Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. It's been seven months since Russia invaded Ukraine, and I've watched in horror at the needless loss of life and senseless destruction of a free and democratic nation. But I've also been inspired by the bravery and resilience of the Ukrainians. This week, we have a very special guest joining me on the podcast, Alex Bornyakov, the Ukraine Deputy Minister of Digital Transformation. He's joining me live from the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. Our discussion covers a wide range of topics, including the role of crypto in Ukraine's fundraising and defense efforts, and Alex's plans to attract tech investment to the country with initiatives like Dia City. We also discuss Alex's personal journey from tech entrepreneur to government minister. And after the episode, if you'd like to donate to Ukraine, We've included links to a few fundraising organizations in the show notes, some of which offer options to donate both via crypto as well as fiat currency. Today we have an incredibly special guest, Alex Bornyakov, who is Deputy Minister for Digital Transformation in Ukraine, joining us today. Alex, thanks so much for taking time out of what I'm sure is a busy schedule to chat a little bit of crypto and Web3 with us. Hi, hi everyone. No problem. Happy to be here and uh, tell about what's going on. I'm excited to hear you know, your perspective on the ground. But first, I, I just want to say from everybody here at Chainalysis, we stand with the people of Ukraine. I've been waking up every day since the invasion started and catching the news cycle overnight, hoping for the best. So we're standing with you. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Your background, I stalked you a little bit on LinkedIn. You have an interesting path to a government minister. I, I think glancing you know, at your early years and your education, you, know, you could very easily be running a tech company in Silicon Valley. In fact, I think you, you were a founder before joining government service. Maybe we can start with kind of your path to the current role that you're in. And did you always have your sights on government service or was that, a, was that an unusual turn for you? Well, actually, I was running a company, not in the Silicon Valley, but out from Ukraine, but this company was a software outsourcing company. And I had a couple clients from, from the States as well, but mostly working for European clients. But later on, I started a company in advertisement technology sector. So we were doing a platform for running ads online, and we were operating mostly from, from Ukraine. Well, later on, I kind of felt that I want to do something for public good. So I moved to the States in 2016 and started to attend School of International and Public Affairs. In 2019, where I was almost graduated, president elections in Ukraine happened. Out of nowhere, like Zelensky won. No one expected he he would won at the beginning. And I was like observing this from, uh, from distance. And by the time when he got into power, I just graduated. It was May 2019. During the course of education, I kind of passed my all my responsibilities uh, in the business because it was actually tough times. I mean, you have to spend a lot of time if you want to be graduated. I came back to Ukraine in the summer and a friend of mine asked, told me like, there's this new Minister of Digital Transformation for the first time in Ukrainian governance history. And uh, they're looking for some people, so uh, I can recommend you to a new minister. And uh, yeah, we met. So he was looking for someone who has background both in the, in public management in IT business. M- Mikhail Fedorov, I'm talking about him. He was looking for someone who was going to develop and grow IT industry of Ukraine. So he asked me to propose a vision of transformation and, and reforms and the policies. Uh, so what has to be done? So I, I made it and he liked it. So he offered me his job 
And uh, in September 2019, in the position of Deputy Minister of Digital Transformation, with a focus on development and growth of startup and venture ecosystem, including crypto, of course, because the crypto is part of this. And uh, and it was actually in the original plan back in 2019. I mean, what we have to do in order to boost growth of IT industry of Ukraine. That's pretty amazing to get recruited into government service and go away from the startup roots. But I think the work you're doing is very important. You've become a huge proponent of Web3 and cryptocurrency. I mean, you you just said it was a part of the long range vision and plan for Ukraine even back in 2019. When did you first get into crypto? What's your origin story there? I don't know. Maybe it was back in 2012, I think. We had some computer power running uh, idle. I was just learning about Bitcoin and mining stuff. So I offered like, let's maybe do, a, let's connect to the pool and uh, maybe you can utilize this computer power to mine. So we started to mine and uh, we got, I don't know, a couple hundred Bitcoins eventually. So the sold them, it was around a year. So if I wouldn't have sold them, I think I'm going to be like multimillionaire by this yeah. time. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, back in 2013, it was know, like a game. For next, I don't know, five or four years, I was just, I don't know, like observing, doing nothing. It was growing from, you know, from 100 bucks, then to 400 bucks, then 1,000. Every time I, I felt like it's too late to jump in, uh, which we know right now that this was not true. But anyway, <laughs> I was like investing in different startups. In 2017, when, when ICO era started i also invested in a couple of them in 2017 i jumped in again i kind of felt that this is major shift is something new wanted to be part of it and um, uh, for the next two years i was closely observing i was actually advisor for one of the uh, crypto startups uh, in 2017 2018 but i, I was doing more like uh, advising on operational side not on the business idea side I got into idea, I felt like what they're doing and uh, the spirit. And, and by that time, they were paying me with ITER. So <laughs> this is how I got like first ETHERs. I jumped into ministry. I totally felt like this has to be somehow regulated the way this business will grow and feel comfortable in, in this country. It seems like you're now the uh, one of the heroes of the Crypto for Good movement, which is has uh, got to be an exciting position. I was following you on Twitter and you recently posted a thread talking about why you feel Ukraine is well positioned to be a Web3 powerhouse. Uh, you made a pretty compelling argument there. I'm curious, you know, do you get people who ask you, like, why is this important to Ukraine? And not just in the current moment, but as you look to the future, like, is Web3 and crypto, you know, is there skepticism around that? And why, why do you think it's an important part of the future of the country? Well, first of all, Ukraine is a quite a progressive country, as evidenced that in a part it's thoughtful embrace of Web3 technology. So, so many Ukrainians are on top of this, and we have a tech-savvy population. I'm sure that it actually came from chain analysis that we are top five ranked in the percentage of cashless payment in the world, and we are among top three in crypto adoption index, according again to the chain analysis. And uh, we have really strong and powerful blockchain community, developers community. And I think like if you look, I mean, 20 years ahead, and I'm personally, I'm a fan of cyberpunk, uh, punk, and uh, not just like game, but uh, the whole genre. When I look on this uh, sci-fi movies or again, like cyberpunk 2077 uh, game, I think that's kind of like of our future. And I think the future of payments is also like based on blockchain technologies, like metaverse thing. Like again, if you're, 
If you look on, on Cyberpunk game and universe, this virtual reality is a part of um, regular part of what's going on. And I think Metaverse and other attributes of Web3 is, is our future anyway. So why not to be on the edge and why not to be one of the first among, among first adopters? So far, we've seen that nations with a strong tech background, they win in competition among other nations. So we want to be nation winners. And we're in a tough position right now with this war. So I don't think we are able to win anymore with our steel production because it's actually destroyed in the east. In Mariupol, there was two major large factories producing steel, they will destroy it. I think we as government, as Ukrainians, we have to think about new technologies and, and how we can be those who adopt it, those who produce it, those who develop it, so we can support our economy. So this is why I think it's important for us embrace everything that's coming new and uh, and see what's happened. But maybe it's not maybe it's not going to work out. I hear a lot of skepticism about what Zuckerberg doing right now with Metaverse thing, but who knows? Maybe in 15 years, uh, maybe in 10 years. I mentioned before that I started a software outsourcing company, and back in the days we decided to do uh, mobile apps. And by that time in 2007, there was like I don't know, maybe hundreds of apps totally. And most of the people were doing websites. No one actually believed that it's going to be so huge by, uh, back in, in 2017. Being first who started to doing apps bring us a lot of business eventually in, in a year or two. So I think this, a similar thing happens with the web tree in, in Ukraine. So if we embrace this now, we're going to benefit from this a lot. It makes a ton of sense, right? If you're first, you can lead rather than it defaulting to companies getting set up in the U.S. Or And I think your point about regulatory clarity is a big part of crypto and Web3, like making sure that it's easy for businesses to operate. A different topic. I mean, you've been pretty vocal about the need for support from financial services companies, being able to support Ukraine's access to financial means and also restricting Russian access. I, I've actually been pleasantly surprised at the global collective action against Russia. I mean, it surprised me how quickly everyone is, has come together. You know, is there more that you would like to see done? Is there is there still gaps or changes companies listening to this podcast should, uh, should attempt to affect uh, on the financial services sector? I think there is always more to be done. Indeed, we so much appreciate it as a nation, of course, not just me personally, but as a nation for the so quick response and condemning what Russia is doing and doing this brave actions, despite of the fact that some of them are losing money and some of them are losing a lot of money. But standing on the right side or, or defending humanitarian or democratic values, it shows responsibility of the people in business to the future generations. Because like if, if we show by our example that money comes first, I don't know what we have left for our children as a legacy. So uh, because that, what's going on is going to be history soon and someone's going to read this history and reading this history will understand or make some decision based on this history so this is this is really important that surely like that values are bigger than money and especially when maybe in the beginning it was not clear but russia's committing is a real genocide in ukraine personally i think that there's no longer room for in a business to stay neutral well technology is neutral but people leading the tech business should not be well, it, it started from uh, big companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, PayPal, uh, many, many more. But I think that crypto companies also should have 
stop bus- doing business with Russia eventually. Yeah, I know that sometimes it's complicated, but I think that that's the responsibility of those who who are running those companies. And see, especially every day we see more and more like cruel things that that Russia is doing. We still working on, uh, I don't know, some companies and working with the companies, uh, inviting them to Ukraine, especially from financial sector, because like before the war, none of them known Ukraine as a country. Uh, and it was like known on their radar or something. So now everyone knows about us. And sometimes we approach them and tell like, listen, uh, this your service going to really uh, help refugees or a lot of Ukrainians left unemployed and this is going to help them to provide for themselves. So it's not just about business, but also for, about helping regular people. So, of course, some businesses say, like, listen, we're going to wait till the war is over and uh, those are like there's sanctions and this the policies are so complex. We don't want to hit the wall. I, and I totally understand that people from West, it's really far away. And sometimes they just not fully understand like to which extent they can work with the Ukrainian people or or those territories that under occupation, if they're violating something. So this is really hard at this point. But I know that we have a bright future with this. We, we establish it, uh, links with, I don't know, hundreds of tech companies, like most of them totally support us and uh, i think once this war, the war is over we're going to have all every, like all, all the tech companies in ukraine just right before the war we launched the uh, dscd which is uh, sort of like a silicon valley in ukraine we have a vision we still we had vision and we still have a vision that we can build uh, the biggest it hub in eastern europe in ukraine so we invite all the companies to build R and D centers to provide services here, and this is part of our job. Dia City is amazing, and and something that actually shocked me as I was doing research for the conversation. You just had the Kiev Tech Summit, like you actually planned a tech conference in the middle of a war. I mean, I planned a few tech conferences. That's hard enough in you know very normal conversations, and and you actually even had Vitalik. Yeah, uh, showed up and spoke at the conference, which is incredible. But you know, talk to me about the motivation for the conference. Like, why now? Well, as I mentioned before, we we have a lot of bright and smart people here. Yeah, even in the times of war, they still need to communicate. We still need to exchange ideas and uh, and work with each other. So it was important to show that there is like still hope, and we shouldn't stop. The fact that uh, Vitalik Buterin showed up is it's really like uh, cheering people. And uh, I remember that, uh, when I went there and he was there, like uh, I know tons of people approaching him with his with the business idea, pitching him with the, their startups. We think not just about today. I mean, in the first months, it was just all short-term pl- planning. So we were planning like maybe day or two, three days ahead. But uh, in two months, we realized that we can't can't live this way. I mean, we realized that Ukraine is going to survive. We realized that they're not going to destroy us, which was actually their goal, just completely eradicate Ukraine from the world map. Maybe just left, I don't know, V for like Western part as, I don't know, as some enclave. But Ukraine, according to them, they must, it must have disappeared. When we realized that, we started to plan like midterm or even long term. And events like this, it's important that there was a lot of from crypto part, not just like regular event, but also dedicated to Web3. 
by this example, we want to show that we, uh, we're not just fighting the enemy, we're also uh, building uh, our future. It's a powerful statement. You're confident in the fact that there is a future. Just amazing that you're able to, to have that long-range thinking and vision current situation. One of the things that's gotten talked about a lot is the successful fundraising campaign that you've been a part of. I think it's now over $60 million in crypto donations. What made you even think we should accept donations in crypto? I mean, was that an obvious thing, given your your background and experience? At the time, it seemed unusual, kind of uncertain if people would send money even. But obviously, it's been a, a massive success. Yeah, indeed. It was not so obvious because it's like there was second day war. It was so hectic and uh, yeah. like everything was just like, wow, I don't believe it's happening. Like, but then we started to get us from our militaries, like we need this, we need that. And uh, we realized that on the second day war, the National Bank of Ukraine, like, the severely limited ability to pay in almost in any type of uh, fiat currency. So crypto really helped for the first day because we were able to cover some immediate needs of the armed force of Ukraine and not just only armed force of Ukraine. The idea to accept crypto is like, because actually... There was no other way. Yeah. This is why we turned to crypto. Like, okay, if uh, if there is no way, but crypt, you can't stop crypto. Right? Let's just uh, accept and start this campaign to accept crypto donations. Michael Chabanian, who I'm sure you you know, the CEO at Kuna, he testified here in the U.S. in a hearing that one of our co-founders at Chainalysis, uh, Jonathan Levin, uh, also spoke. I, I saw that. Oh, awesome. He described the situation in the early days of the war where the entire banking system was basically offline, right? The ATMs didn't work. There was no cash currency to be had. Crypto was the only way that people could pay. It's a common critique of crypto that you can't actually buy anything with it. But obviously, that's not the case. You were able to buy supplies for the military. The normal person on the street was using crypto. How did that happen? How were you able to actually buy things with crypto? Well, the funny thing is, if someone is really in need, figure it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, on the regular circumstances, I would also say, like, oh, that's probably impossible. Or it's just, I don't know, I have a way. Like, I have a fiat currency. I can pay through the bank. Why would I bother yeah. with crypto? But when yeah. it turns out that you can, and you start to look for other way, and we figure out that some suppliers are even accept crypto without any exchange. And uh, if they even not accept crypto, there are exchanges and this possibility to exchange and, and send them over. And actually, like FTX helped us a lot and other exchanges. Uh, Kuna, of course, they they were on top of this and they still are. Their help is, is significant, the most significant, but still like major exchanges and, and they, they were working with us and helping us to do whatever we want. Uh, in order to uh, provide proper functionality for uh, for accepting the, uh, the amounts and then send them over or exchange them, of course. I don't know, after a month, uh, we figure out that more and more people are accepting. So if yeah. in the beginning, like maybe like 30, 40% were accepting, but in the end, most of them just were accepting crypto, like 60% of them, like, like if they hear, oh, you're from Ukraine, you want this, we can do it in, in crypto, that's fine. <laughs> We understand. That's amazing. That's you amazing. Can't with the bank. <laughs> What's the current state of the banking system? Is it back online or or is it yeah. still disrupted? Okay. With the, with some limitations and um, yeah. yeah because uh, a major export of export items of Ukraine was grain and uh, steel 
but we are importing a lot from other countries. So the National Bank is uh, is doing measures to prevent money outcome from country because uh, we have our national currency, and if uh, if we import too much, the exchange rate is is like hit the, hit the sky. So I actually not carrying cash for uh, for the last couple of weeks here, and it's fine. I can pay like with my phone almost everywhere, and everything is working fine. If I went to a like a grocery store, would I be able to buy in crypto? No, 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 no. <laughs> no. Okay. We're still working on that. Yeah. But again, National Bank of Ukraine, they also decided to set a pause on uh, crypto because they think it's too disruptive in the times of war. Because they want to control uh, a lot of things right now. In a peaceful time, they were basically agreed with their uh, with with what we're doing, and they were supportive. And they were working on CBDC project, so there was uh, there's a lot of plans uh, before the war. I think once the financial situation stabilizes, we're going to be back on track with crypto and, uh, and crypto adoption. That's exciting. There was news two weeks ago. The U.S. Department of Treasury announced sanctions against one of these pro-Russian paramilitary groups operating in the country, Task Force Rusich, I think they're called. We had done some research on this group earlier in the summer because we we noticed that they were fundraising via social media for supplies and kind of fundraising in crypto. I was happy to see Treasury step in and uh, sanction these individuals, hopefully shutting down that fundraising effort. But anything else that we should be pushing for on the financial side in terms of blocking that that avenue of, of fundraising? Definitely should be done. I think they what they're doing is not right. But I think major focus should be on, on money laundering stuff because uh, I know they also turn to crypto. And uh, well, basically on those hearings in the Senate, there was this issue was raised, but the expert said that it's not so huge like at this point. But I think it, it should be carefully studied and monitoring. And block all the groups that doing fundraising in crypto we have a dedicated group of people in our enforcement agency that following this track. And of course, they it actually pretty successful. I don't want to disclose too much details, but we own this. What I observed that what they're doing, they do like a huge amount of small fundraising. It's not like a huge fund that like a crypto fund of Ukraine, but they doing small things and, and it's really hard to track them. But we're doing our best. <laughs> Let me tell you this. We're here to support for sure. I think we saw they they had raised when we published the blog in July. It was about two million. I think it's gotten up to about three three million USD value. But you're right. It's all it's all very small donations. It appears to be kind of individuals that are sending money. But hopefully we can shut that down. A different topic, and you mentioned this earlier. Kia City. Talk about that. So this is a, a hub for tech companies. There's tax incentives. Is the idea to attract you know international companies, or actually to build startups that are Ukraine native, like founded in the country? What's the target? Well, it's actually both. So DC is like a virtual. It's a, like a virtual country. So where you can register your business, get tax incentive. We call this legal regime, in special legal regime in Ukraine. Unlike other type of companies, if you're uh, applying for DCD and you're, uh, you have to have, you have to meet some criteria. Like you have to at least have nine people on board. If you're not startup, if you're a startup, you can, you can actually have like whatever you want, like two or three, whatever. And then you have to have like average salary for months in a company. And it, and of course you have to be related to IT or high technologies. You get like five times less taxes. For the war, 
And still, we have thousands of companies and almost 300,000 developers. So we wanted to create an environment for them to be internationally competitive. We wanted also to bring a lot of perks, which actually helped them to raise capital easily. But also, providing this environment, we hope to attract international business too, because a lot of companies looking for a place to set up their business. And if they see that a policy-making and legal infrastructure in this country is easy to use, it's cheap, they're moving headquarters there. And this was our goal. And to be like one of the top jurisdictions for IT companies, for our startups to create company, find, find raise and grow in Ukraine because of their ex-Soviet complex legal procedures. If you raise money, there's a whole bunch of paperwork. So for example, we didn't have something called safe agreement or convertible note. Pretty common tool in, in the venture world, yeah. So in DCD, you can have this. If you're a startup, you can have safe agreement or convertible note in regular circumstances. But if you're a resident of DCD, you can do this. That's great. So it gives you faster legal process, lower taxes, yeah. more exposure to, to raise capital. I just saw news this week, actually, a firm called Horizon Capital had a closing on a, on a large venture capital fund that was targeted. I, I don't think it was just Ukraine they're planning to invest in. It's more broad across Eastern Europe, but $125 million in newly raised funds for investment, which is amazing. I mean, that's a that's a big fundraise. Yeah, they're doing a great job and uh, we're so happy. And recently also, I was in New York announcing a blue and yellow fund from FF Venture. And this is also the huge initiative, almost, almost $50 million that's going to go directly to Ukrainian startups. That's exciting. So if anybody's listening to this and thinking about starting a company and needs some capital, there's uh, there's funds to be had there in Ukraine. I'm curious, like you seem very focused on the future, the post-war. As, as you said, it's become clear that Russia will not succeed in eradicating Ukraine. And so there has to be thinking about what is rebuilding mean. The opportunity to build new cities with a technology-first approach I think has a lot of opportunity. How much thought have you been able to give on that? And you know, within uh, your part of the ministry, is is there a lot of discussion about what a digital city actually looks like? About rebuilding, the major problem at this point is how people are going to survive winter because so many homes are destroyed and still being destroyed. People flee, but even in some cities where we regain control. The infrastructure is completely broken. So we as a ministry now more focusing on digitizing the process of and speeding up the process of reconstruction permits and uh, applications or fully digitize the process of documenting losses or damages. And uh, I don't think we we're fo- will be focused on some like virtual or we have some projects that we're going to announce soon in, in, with the metaverse and, and stuff. But as a ministry, our major concern right now is, is well-being of people. Uh, in, in some places, it's, it's so much worse. It's so bad. People have homes that have no water, no electricity, no heat, and it's getting cold. So this is the top priority at this point. Speed up the rebuilding effort. Yeah. Eliminate the government bureaucracy where you can. Well, Alex, last question for you. It's been over half a year, and I think I speak for a lot of people when I say I'm amazed at the resilience of the Ukrainian people, but so many 
folks that I talk to want to know what more can they do to help? Obviously, fundraising is one one avenue. Is there anything else that you would suggest that people outside Ukraine can do to assist in the effort? Thank you for this question. It's it's really important to hear it. And, uh, and my answer would be that the best way to help Ukraine is to invest in Ukraine. This is what we tell, in, in, at least in the ministry. Of course, fund, uh, fundraising is important and still we getting donations and crypto fund of Ukraine and uh, the, the major fund that are run under President Zelensky's supervision is called United24. It also accepts crypto, by the way, and uh, all the other uh, ways to help. And we have great emissaries there, uh, including Hollywood actors that uh, promote this. This is one side of the coin. Another side of the coin that I think that Ukrainians learn how to provide for themselves. And lost of them, a lot of them just lost this opportunity. But it doesn't mean they just want to sit and wait for donations or, I don't know, for charity. They want to be involved. They want to work. Uh, so I think my message would be that if you know some people from Ukraine, hire them or give them job or, I don't know, recommend them. This definitely would help. Like if you know a Ukrainian company, again, you can recommend it for some work. If it's IT, it's very easy. I mean, it's a freelancer from Ukraine, worker freelancer from Ukraine. Definitely those money that you pay, they're going to supply him. Some portion of this money goes as a taxes to help government. So we need to make our best to make our economy still running. Because this is what Russia wants. They just want to intimidate us. They want to make us hopeless. They just lose hope. And if our economy stops running, maybe like people will be desperate enough to stop fighting. And what's still, if our economy is running, we have resources, we can fight this war and we can win. That's something that I think we can all think about, focus on investment into Ukraine, not just charity. And we'll look forward to the future when you're winning. Alex, thank you for taking the time to, to speak with us. We're going to try and get this message out there and be safe. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Key. If you could do me a small favor, share it with your friends and colleagues. Help keep the focus on the tragedy happening in Ukraine. In addition to the battlefield casualties, millions have been displaced from their homes, and the global food supply has been disrupted by this senseless Russian war. We at Chainalysis stand with Ukraine. We've included links to eight organizations in the show notes, some of which offer options to donate via crypto and fiat currencies. Your support is very much appreciated.